LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat. Beginning in August 2020, Freedom from Fear is a free-form discussion series taking the title as its starting point. In this episode, Jason Horsley and I explore the origins and purpose of fear, how fear can cause us to overlook the most important things in life, and how fear of the future stops us living in the present. We also discuss the pandemic of fear triggered by the current coronavirus crisis, the collective insanity infecting human consciousness, and how the root of all human fear ultimately lies in our fear of death. Hi, Jason. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today uh, once again on Legalized Freedom. Hi, Greg. Now, today, Jason, this is a bit of a first for me. Um, it's a new uh, series that I've devised uh, entitled Freedom from Fear. And I'm going to have various guests on taking that as our starting point, but with no defined um, direction or end point as such. Before we start chatting, however, uh, for listeners who maybe haven't heard any of our previous interviews, do you want to just say a little bit about yourself, a potted, potted bio, and a little bit about your work? I never know how to do this, really, because it's pretty hard to improvise about one's life, but at the same time, it's pretty hard to pot it, isn't it? So, uh, author, blog, uh, podcaster, blogger, long-time spiritual seeker, for lack of a better, better term, really my whole life, I could trace it back to my childhood, being aware that something was wrong with the world and or with myself. Um, in recent years, I've, I've traced that more formally to, to trauma, to early trauma. And so my, my spiritual quest has, has got more and more grounded in the body, which I think is relevant to today's topic. Uh, I'm, I'm a very productive person, but it's part of my coping mechanism, no doubt, is the writing and the the blogging and the podcasting, but I think it's, it creates a body of work that in itself is a, is a kind of um, narrative or map of my own journey, uh, such as I was just summing up there, like there's a very stark contrast between my early material and my later material, and I hope it will continue that way but my primary interest has always been the weird and the anomalous and the the dark and the malevolent and it's kind of nested in this larger quest for for meaning for for, for spiritual or transcendental meaning in, in in myself and in the universe okay well thank you for that i had this idea i say for this podcast series one day, it just came into my head as a title, as I say, Freedom from Fear. I just thought, well, that sounds like a thing. So what shall I do with that? And it was in response to really, we're recording this in the midst of the so-called coronavirus crisis of 2020. And everybody knows what the fallout from that has been. But for me, the real pandemic just has been fear. And I've, I've never seen so much fear in the world. And I don't like it. I don't like being around fearful people. I don't like the fact that people are in in many ways needlessly afraid. I myself, for me, fear is a little bit like hate in that I kind of try to not have it feature in my life. I try to tell myself I'm not afraid of anything. Sometimes that's more credible than others. So it's just something that I really want as little to do with as possible. When I see other people suffering from it, I do feel great, great empathy. I want to, people to stop being afraid, but I want them, that to happen naturally. I want people to get fear in perspective because for me, the only real role it seems to have is, 
is a primitive fight or flight sort of thing, you know. And even then, being if your life's in danger, being excessively afraid won't help you. Uh, you could be paralyzed by fear and not take any action. So that's kind of some of the thoughts I was having one afternoon when I, I came up with this. And I thought, well, if I was to have a dialogue with some people, you know, maybe something useful could come from it, maybe something that, that would help people deal with what they're experiencing at the minute. Well, the first thing there that comes to mind for me, and it's... It's something that I've tried to keep in awareness maybe throughout my life, but more in later years, is the difference between rational fear and irrational fear. It seems like a really obvious consideration because clearly there are reasons to be afraid in, 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 in our lives. There are times in our life where fear is a rational response. There aren't very many, however. I mean, we live in a civilization and society in which mm, we're very buffeted and protected. So this this pandemic, quote unquote, I guess is um, obviously it's a threat to our security, and yet paradoxically, it's causing this clampdown and this lockdown where where the control and the security measures are, are just ramping up to the point that. There's something else to be afraid of that seems viscerally real uh, beside the virus, I mean, or the alleged virus, and that is the encroachment on our freedom, which is interesting. I mean, those two concepts, freedom and fear, and freedom from fear, um, and then there's the fear of a loss of freedom. I mean, that is something to fear. However, it, it might not be rational in the sense that, uh, I mean, to qualify this thing about the difference between rational and irrational fear, there is um there is something to fear in having our, having our freedom taken away. So in a certain sense, you could say that's a rational fear, uh, and even the virus, you could say. I mean, they could kill you or I. Maybe theoretically, we don't know for sure, but that that's the scuttlebutt. So you could say that's also rational fear. But but is it? Because in terms of a um, a draconian new world orderish kind of world government agenda whether or not it's you know hatched in the Bilderbergs one doesn't have to be conspiratorial to see that there's a global agenda now around this virus that is taking away our freedoms I don't think that there's too much you know assumption in that I think that's pretty factual um, but then if you add the element that there is this opportunist if not malevolent agency of control of you know, control and power then that would seem like that's a rational fear, but but it's that it maybe isn't because there isn't much we can do with the fear. If you see what I mean, the energy of fear around, I would say both the um, the social oppression and the social um, loss of freedom, and the fear around the virus, they're not necessarily fears that we can act on, and therefore they're not necessarily rational so I'm just putting that out as a as a further qualification that rational fear isn't just about whether the thing that we're afraid of is real it's also whether the fear is going to help us to deal with it and I think in 99 times out of 100 it doesn't I think that the the only kind of what I mean by rational fear as in useful fear is 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 the um jungle based really I mean we could say on the streets if some big burly guy comes up or some cop with a truncheon to bash our skull in then that fear response would be useful I think or it might not because as you said we might freeze but, but, <laughs> but freeze theoretically freeze can save maybe not in that case but in the jungle uh, there is the reason there's fight or flight or freeze or there's a few more F's they've introduced haven't they but anyway is that they are potentially uh, aids to survive or obviously flight is obvious but freeze then um, and, and fight fight is obvious but but freeze is also like one could it's like playing possum one, one doesn't present a threat one gets then overlooked by whatever it is the predator or the the angry drunkard in the street or you know the, even freeze can can be the right response instinctively and that in that case in all of those cases the fear has has helped us survive, which is, I would say, that's the only purpose of fear, is to help us survive. And so it's survival-based, I would say, fear. There's a, that, that's where it comes from, that part of us that is afraid of not surviving. Um, I was going to say one other thing, but 
thank you, Ranjan. And Maho, yeah, just to, to to add some more context, based on you know my interest over the years, the um, living in a couched and cushioned society as we do was far less rational reasons to fear in the sense I've defined it, as in far less circumstances in which fear will be useful to us. Um, we're not actually less afraid. I would say we, we live more consistently and constantly in a state of fear than ever. And I think that that, well, that's a complex thing we could unpack, but the one thing I wanted to introduce just to finish uh, was is the trauma that we have. I believe we have a, a, um, a storehouse or a reservoir of fear in our bodies from early formative adverse experiences of traumatizers and because we have that fear in our bodies we're in a constant state of, of of tension and of apprehension and we then project that onto the world but also act in certain ways uh, collectively and individuals that create a society that is traumatizing and restricting and doesn't doesn't provide us with healthy outlets or healthy ways to resolve that those traumas and so something is perpetuating now and I would agree anyway to finish with your essential point that the pandemic we're seeing now is is more about a contagion of fear than about any any virus uh, before I forget I'd refer listeners to a recent show I did with a guest called Frank Furedi his book is entitled how fear works you could do worse than listen to that show and also read his book and a lot of what he speaks about is is how this cushioned society that we we do live in molly coddled and quote-unquote protected um from cradle to grave and it doesn't result in less fear it doesn't at all it puts it makes us less self-reliant you know less able to basically take care of ourselves and the more uh, uncertainty and the more unknowns there are, then the more afraid people get because they don't feel that they have control over their lives. Um, and that in, that in itself causes tremendous uh, apprehension and fear. And I made a short video recently where I was railing against the tone of the mainstream media at the minute, uh, throughout the pandemic actually, and how paralyzed with fear that leaves people feeling because there's nothing actionable in any of it there's nothing you can do and we've just been talking about fear as a spur to action you know fear fear should be some kind of momentary thing like anger a flash that results in something either in in the case of anger or fear you, you might step back from that and go oh i felt a surge of rage in that moment and now I step back for perspective um, was that appropriate? Maybe it was, you know, you witness an injustice, but then what are you going to do about it? And so this impotent fear is as bad as the impotent anger that a lot of people, and there's a lot of angry people at the minute as well, uh, for various reasons. I mean, I've, it's a war of all against all. I've ne and not only have I never seen so much fear, I've never seen people at their throats so much. And that it can be people from, I was going to say across the spectrum as far as the pandemic goes, but really it's quite polarized. Um, you know, it's people who, very much feel that the whole thing is one big scam to take their uh, rights and freedoms away, whether deliberately engineered or opportunistic exploitation. And then there's people at the other end who are thoroughly convinced of the, the mainstream narrative. You know, that the, the virus really is very dangerous. It's a grave threat to society. And all these measures that we're taking, by and large, are necessary. And they are really angry and really afraid of the people on the, as they see in the opposing camp. And somewhere in the middle of all that, there's a few of us trying to basically discern what's really happening. So I guess the thrust of what I'm just saying there is the, the, the fear as I say, a spur to action and how useless it can be when it's just something that keeps you awake at night and gives you stomach ulcers and raises your blood pressure. Uh, ditto with anger. Yeah, although I guess I put the qualifier there that it could be useful, and you hinted at that with the anger. Like if anger, anger can be a spur to positive action, even if it's destructive, confronting injustice, let's say, if it's in a local environment where one person can make a difference, I'd say. Uh, ditto with fear. That's more obvious, you know, a ball's coming for your head, you have a jolt of fear and you jump out of the way of it um, without even having to decide that your fear has moved you. Now, it might have moved you in a, 
it's obviously a reactive fashion so there's a very limited number of circumstances where that kind of purely reactive behavior is useful um, but the other the other approach you, that you suggested is you step back from the emotion itself and you look at it and say well where did that come from what triggered it and what's it there for and that that would be um, that would be useful in another way which would relate to you know my my previous point which is is that much of our, str our strong emotional re responses or reactions probably most of them in my opinion are what they call triggers now is the, you know the trendy term for it we get triggered which is to say that there is a trigger within us that gets hit often by the lightest touch from something outside of us so that we overreact that's kind of a you know loose definition of being triggered it's an, a, an emotional overreaction by which we lose control over our own responses uh, to something outside of us that is kind of irrelevant you know the cliche of the, the partner that leaves the, the cap off the toothpaste and suddenly the whole marriage is in jeopardy that kind of cliche um, because some, I mean, that's not a very good example, but let's, I'll use a personal one. My, my wife uh, arriving very late for dinner because she got involved in some conversation on the street and I prepared all the dinner and it's all ready and she's not there and I, I get triggered. I feel angry and I feel abandonment issues, you know, just, just to make it more palpable to the listeners. Um, one can see how it's really not about what's happening in the present but something in the past that is unresolved that's being brought up into bodily awareness it's bodily affect and so that that's useful I mean anyone who's been in a long-term relationship and and been able to go deep deeper in it or through it uh, would have had this experience that when we get triggered by by circumstances we 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 are kind of obliged to resolve unresolved issues in our past in our psyche and I'd say to really bring it down to the basics in our body we've got knots in our body knots of energetic tension that are preventing us from really living they're keeping us in internal lockdown and so to be triggered in that way that there's enough there's a space that's loving enough or trusting enough that we don't just react and then ex escalate the situation we, we trigger back and then they they fight back and so on which is what you're describing is going on globally if, if we've got a, a space where that doesn't happen um, then the opposite will happen we will become more aware of our reactive nature and therefore we'll become less reactive so that is a use of fear but of course it's a, we're turning it around completely we're turning our focus away from the world or the, the, the other that's caused the reaction to ourselves and then going deeper into our into our nervous system because I'd say it's a bodily thing. One can use psychoanalysis as a way to sort of keep the mind busy, but I think the thing that really is happening is 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 letting the the, the emotive, affective, affect-based reaction draw our awareness into the areas of the body where that something is trapped, and thereby bringing more awareness to it. The blockage. And, and dissolving it. I think all of that happens at a below the threshold of consciousness and that's very productive. I'd say that's even our purpose as human beings is to clear out all of that gunk so that we can be receptacles for, for life, for the life force. So I think maybe what we're seeing in the world, I mean now, I'm not sure if I can take it to the big picture very coherently, but there may be a bifurcation occurring uh, more palpably and and you suggested it well there'd almost be two bifurcations one there's this false polarity of those who are for or against whatever it is that you described and they're at war but they're really one force they're just like two sides of one thing which is which is anger fear reaction whether it's on the one side or the other schismogenesis but the real bifurcation would be between those two extremes and as you put it the that liminal space in the middle those of us who are just trying to stay in the middle and and not react and if we do react just to focus on the reaction rather than let the reaction you know believe in it 
like oh wait a minute I overreacted there and and why did I and so on and so then the world and the situation becomes like a training ground really I mean, we're training ourselves to not react the trigger chamber and that's that's a psychosomatic purification I don't I'm not too happy with that word but that's the one that came to mind a bit like Christian purgatory um, but anyway I mean, we can frame it however we want but but it's like a big massage really we're just getting a big shiatsu massage that's pushing all of our knots and it seems like it's a bit brutal but actually the, the world uh, I mean existence knows what it's doing and so those of us who can surrender to it even without understanding it uh, just get one hell of a mass massage and potentially come out more relaxed. I feel like I'm more relaxed every day, although I, I do get triggered more easily, and so that's an odd thing in a certain sense, or maybe not more easily, but more often. So maybe it's because the world's becoming more and more fraught, as you're saying. I feel like I get, I'm getting triggered more often than ever in a certain sense, but it passes more quickly, and I'm more increasingly aware in, in the experience of being triggered. Oh, look, I'm being triggered now. Fancy that. I thought I'd evolved more than this. I just got triggered on Twitter. Some guy, it, I won't go into it because it's details, but it was just a tweet, you know. Uh, and I was thinking about it for a whole hour afterwards. So, so, so anyway, I mean, that's a combination of maybe two things. One is the world's becoming more and more of this, um, you know, lobster pot, the temperature's rising and people are starting to squeal. Uh, and then, on the other hand, for myself internally, I think as we clear out stuff, we do become more sensitive. So where, where we do have knots, they're deeper and deeper, I suppose. So then we're kind of more and more easily hurt, you could say, in that emotional sense. Wounded, like we feel, oh, that wounded me, that comment or that criticism or so on. But I think that's because we're becoming more sensitive to how we are wounded rather than that we're being wounded in the present so that's a crucial awareness isn't it if somebody pushes your buttons and you think that they wounded you you want to wound them back or at the very least cut them off completely which can be the right move um, but if you're aware that actually that with their clumsiness they just stuck their finger in a wound you already had then yeah you certainly get them out of your wound but then you want to attend the wound you don't want to you don't want to be trying to resolve the situation with that with that person or with that global situation it's 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 our own woundedness that is the priority i would say well i've been speaking and writing about a bifurcation uh to some extent along the lines that you know we've been talking about but also other various permutations of that um largely uh meaning that i as particularly in the 21st century, early years of seeing more and more people going deeper into unconsciousness. And even as the, uh, you know, the systems that support the kind of materialist paradigm, I mean that in both senses of the word, by the way, in terms of like a worldview, but also in a, you know, a consumer culture, even as the systems for that start to crumble, it'll double down on their perspective of the meaning of life or lack of meaning, you know, which is like we're here for a short time. You just have to get stuff, you know, you've got to have a good time while you're here on earth to think because it doesn't last. And I think that it's that really ultimately when you zoom out, that's brought us to where we are now. I've said to myself, I'm walking down the street many times in, in recent months. I find myself saying hardcore materialism has brought us to this. This is why we're here because our ultimate view of our place in on the earth our place you know in the web of life our view of the cosmos our view of of our place in that and you know our lack of meaning and, and purpose in existence and it's all of that that some people find that very that line of thought kind of very abstract and what's that got to do with what's going on on the television but i think it's just directly linked to be honest so uh, this is why why i find myself uh, the minute having talking a lot about um, philosophy and existentialism with people, uh, it, it, the conversation might start out talking about the pandemic, but it very quickly moves to these big picture issues because I just think that's where that's where we'll need we'll find some of the some of the answers. You know, it's almost like a Jungian analysis of of uh, where we are now. And indeed, actually reading a lot of essays and, and letters and things from Jung, I'm finding great relevance. 
uh, and many of his ideas and many of his observations for the times that uh, we live in. Well, not so much the last thing about Jung, because that could be a you know a whole sidetrack. Uh, but right before that, I mean, what you were generally summing up there is is what I've been feeling too, which is, I mean, I would put it this way, that the real pandemic that people are afraid of is death. And that pandemic has <laughs> always been with us. Like Everybody dies. Everybody who's currently here is going to die. And eventually everybody who's ever lived will, will die and be dead and there'll be no more human beings. And that will be that, one way or another. That's that's the case. Maybe there'll be a new human human strain, or or maybe we're in some loop where things repeat, or who knows. But as long as we're identified with a um, linear timeline, which is Fight Club, isn't it? Uh, everything ends with zero. Um, so 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 yeah. The question really is for me the the ultimate socio-political question let's say around the COVID thing is well how is this really different from from just the presence of death in our lives and is is the potential here to let that awareness in to become more aware of death and because there's two things huh? there's, there's denial of death which is what I was getting from what you were saying about the materialist worldview well Interesting. That starts with the denial of the soul, and and that propagates. And that I mean, that's a whole. That's a big question in itself, because I think you know the soul is a religious concept. But let's say a, a loss of awareness of the ensouled nature of existence. So even pre-religion and religious belief and concepts, I would say we had as human beings, just as animals have, an awareness of might even say the eternal, but of another dimension of existence, let's just say that. There is a life force in all of nature and in all of us, and it outlives us. So there is an eternal quality to our experience as physical, organic beings. So we lost touch with that, and then we created religious concepts, just kind of not entirely lose uh, awareness of it. And then, because those religious concepts went, you know, they were the Tao that was being named. They weren't really equivalent to the experience of it. Eventually, we stopped believing in the concepts because they were just concepts, talking collectively. And so then, gradually, the materialist view entered. So then we're just bodies, or not even bodies, we're just minds, you know, Descartes and I am thinking organisms that really don't exist at all. Um, and then, so then death started to become palpably real. Because if all we are is an image or an identity, identification with our physical bodies, then the, the fact that we know that our bodies are going to die becomes utterly terrifying. And then, so then enters denial of death. And then and this is Ernest Becker's thesis, is that, you know, our whole culture and society is really fueled by denial of death. So then to get to the fear of death, and, and face our fear of death, we first of all have to get through the denial of death. Because we're actually living in a in a time where in, individually and collectively we don't really believe that we're going to die. You know, check in with any individual who's honest, unless they're 80 years old maybe, they, they would recognize that really they, they think that death is what happens to other people. It's always been an abstract concept, death. Because we're outside our bodies, so we don't feel life, we can't really feel death. So then it's just this concept that's terrifying. And, um, um, well, I'm not sure how to finish that, but just to bring it back to the COVID, that, that's, that's my position as far as how, unfortunately, I don't have a need to state it because it never, never really gets to that point. I just listen when people talk about COVID now. I just try not to express an opinion because, but what it comes down to, and I just had a conversation with somebody today, um, just because looking at property in Europe, and they were insisting the mask, people have to wear the mask, and they, they were taking the, you know, the standard line, the party line, and um, I mean, we weren't having a conversation to talk about that stuff, we were talking about property values and stuff, but I mean, I, there was, I felt a temptation to, to, confront that but but I didn't and 
because it would have been futile and that wasn't the purpose of our, of our conversation but at this point to me it's it, it's becoming more futile to try and confront people in their positions around this my position is simply that I don't currently believe it and if anyone asks that's what I'll say but if they don't ask why, why volunteer that at this point right it doesn't really matter to them well it does actually it's the point they might start policing me but if they're not already policing me why invite them to do that right number one number two and this is the area I never we never get to because we don't get through that first obstacle because I don't want to really go through it I mean I wouldn't mind to get to the second one actually but is well is it what's the big deal about death like have you only just realized that we're all going to die and, and and now you want to dedicate your life to, to keeping death at bay well you're going to fail it's I think it's it's a blood it's like a herd I'm getting the image now of the herd in the forest fire and it's the stampede is coming although ironically people are being stampeded into their you know their their uh, audio visual devices they're being stampeded into total disembodiment so it's not necessarily going to be an obvious stampede in the sense of zombie apocalypse hordes roaming the streets although there may be that too but what's more apparent is people are fleeing this reality into a voluntary self-incarceration that becomes more and more contingent on the technology and the media and social networking becomes dissolution to social distancing as in the only way for people to connect to each other is through the technology which is all controlled and monitored and, 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 and disembodied so that's where the stampede's going but anyway the parallel I was making now is that the that this herd mentality is being triggered around a collective denial of death underneath which is a collective terror of death and it, and that I mean I guess I don't know if that's a good thing but it's potentially potentially I mean for, for us to become more acutely aware of death would seem to be a definite benefit however it's back to this thing isn't it of are people noticing their reaction or are they just continuing to react and just letting the reaction possess them so and that's that's the COVID um, the policy really is we need to react we need to react and keep reacting and if we don't see people reacting enough we need to make them react right? <laughs> the best defense is an offense um, but but you won't hear I don't know if you have but I haven't heard people say well it's, and, and I actually understand why because I don't want to say it either but if there is a if there is a pandemic and it's going to completely trash civilization and wipe out most of humanity okay maybe can we just be okay with that without without giving it the baggage of oh the earth is killing us because we've polluted the planet that's where you might hear it although I imagine people are, are shutting up now that extinction rebellion types are probably not wanting to say it because you know because the climate they wouldn't welcome it now but they're probably sitting back smugly satisfied that this is happening I don't know I might have been in the past I'm not saying that we need a cull of the human species at all I'm just saying if it's happening uh, okay I mean who why assume it's a bad thing like that's an immediate assumption uh, and it's and it's really only supported by the the widespread belief that death is a bad thing and we need a cure for, we need a cure for death which is transhumanism or whatever else you know crazy delusional cult like religious like Scientology you know there's all kinds of different as you know solutions to death and they're all snake oil in my opinion no I agree and again that's something something that something we've talked about and something I've, I've done a lot of shows around and written articles and I absolutely agree and yeah and I, I make exactly the same parallel uh, it is, fear of death is behind all of it and that's what this certainly boils down to It's uh, and as I said that is part of the misapprehension of, of who and what we are and our, you know, the, our place in the cosmos and the aforementioned web of life you mentioned there something that had me thinking you're talking about having conversations with other people about what's going on and how we're all supposed to be reacting in certain ways and we're all supposed to be reacting to each other. And and one thing that I've always felt strongly 
but I'm reminded of very much you know, on like a daily basis, sometimes multiple times a day, is that you've only really got control over yourself. And a lot of people don't even appear to have that. But if you've got self-mastery is a powerful thing and it's about the most that you can really aim for. And I constantly tell myself, you can't control other people. Mm. So no matter how irrational I feel other people are being, no matter what way their behavior I find disturbing or baffling, or it might be impinging on my own freedom, I cannot control other people. So therefore, I will let them go their own way. If they want to wear a hazmat suit while sitting alone in their own car on a deserted highway, that is up to them. Uh, it's not for me. I don't know what's going on in their mind really at root. And I don't want to be, to feel like if I'm walking down the street that I'm surrounded by aliens and some kind of invasion of the body snatchers type scenario. That's to say I've got almost a nothing in common with any of these people who are supposed to be my fellow human beings. Um, I, don't, I don't like to feel like that. But again, I can't control other people. And I think if anything... Thinking, taking that consideration um, and, and applying it a little bit more widely to life in general, I felt that this whole experience since March when the pandemic reaction and countermeasures really took hold in Europe and the US and Canada and elsewhere, of course, that I keep reminding myself that it's, it's I, I need to live the happiest, most fulfilled life that I can. That has always been the case. And that has not changed. What has been happening the last few months have not changed that. If anything, it should cause me to, to refocus on that with renewed intensity. And I, you, as much as I always say to people, it's advice I give out freely is like, you know, you can't make your own happiness dependent on others or dependent on things outside of you. Then that applies more than ever now, really. So it's the challenge now is to thrive if we can amidst all this adversity and anger and fear and division. Yeah, well, it's back to this thing I said about the world being a trigger chamber, it's a training ground and a big fat massage. There are ways to optimise the situation. Um, I was going to say approach it like a video game, but it was just an unfortunate metaphor in a way, because that would suggest being disembodied, but I'm, I'm suggesting the opposite, being more embodied and just engaging with whatever's happening uh, you know, as it's happening and finding ways to appreciate, I suppose, appreciate. And I just spoke to somebody yesterday, uh, an old friend, and he's in Guatemala, and um, it was quite sobering because his situation, in Guatemala it's pretty bad, They've had five months of lockdown, the economy's in ruins, and and he personally knows people who've died, diagnosed with COVID. Now, I, I was sceptical about it. I am sceptical about this. And other things he said, I mean, he, he's gone from a position of, of disbelieving it to really believing, more or less, even though he's aware that it's being exploited, he believes. But I didn't want to get pulled into that because I, I knew it would lead nowhere. Uh, and the reason I mention it isn't isn't around that so much as um, that his life has really become very difficult. Like he he was on the verge of he just started a travel agency and it was it was doing very well. So he was becoming independent, autonomous, maybe for the first time. He just met somebody he was f fallen in love with. Uh, and suddenly this happened. So he was expecting like the best year of his life, 2020, and suddenly this happened and it turned into the worst year of his life. And he wasn't exactly complaining to me. He had his, his spirits. He was laughing about it. So it wasn't like a self-pity thing of, oh, this hasn't gone my way. But nonetheless, it did, it did bring home to me how fortunate my circumstances are and how it was very difficult for me even to put myself in his shoes, never mind if I had to, I mean, in a sense, it'd probably be easier if I had to, because then I would, I would draw on those inner resources. But uh, for me here in British Columbia, uh, I mean, life has improved since COVID, not because of COVID, uh, but not exactly despite it either, because our business is, is doing better, I think, partly as a result of COVID, the thrift store business, maybe because all the other thrift stores are closed, or I don't know, who knows. But anyway, we're, we're doing better in that regard. Um, 
in other ways, I just say it's just just it's it's parallel with COVID that I've just been becoming more attuned with nature and my body, and so all this backdrop of crisis hasn't encroached upon it. It's just provided a contrast. But when I hear about somebody's circumstances like this friend in Guatemala, it is sobering because it becomes it feels a bit theoretical to me then to say, oh, well, there are ways to optimize this and make the most of it. If I was locked in an apartment or even a house in a big city for months on end and couldn't even leave the country and couldn't even get to nature and couldn't even see the people I love, that, that, that's, that would be really, really hard. Um, you know, much harder than getting sick uh, even and certainly much harder than, you know, being out in the world and watching the world go to hell, I would say. Um, there's something about that absolute restriction of freedom and that being cut off from nature and one's loved ones that is really brutal. It's really brutal. And, and I guess this, this is going to divide people because you know, when I hear people talking about, and I wasn't sure with this friend what his position was, we didn't really get into it, but I suspect that if he had a choice, he would he would want things to carry on as normal and just, like I said, just let the pandemic do its thing. And I would think that many people who've had to basically bring their lives to a stop because of social um, mandates that are supposedly protecting us or damage controlling the crisis or so on. And so I would think that many people would, would rather just do what they did in Sweden and just you know, take our chances and let the chips fall where they may. Um, so, I mean, those are two things, I guess, is what I'm saying. Like, in terms of a crisis and a pandemic and a virus and death and all that, an apocalyptic scenario, there's a, there's a lot of potential there, as you're saying, for growth and for thriving and for, and for experiencing new aspects of ourselves and each other and for working together in communities. Crisis brings out the best in us sometimes. But in terms of just being locked in a, in a, in a room somewhere, it really shuts down so many of the outlets and avenues for, for, for development and for growth and for connection. Uh, and as I said, it, it, it shoehorns us or it channels us into the, um, what we're going to call it, the forgetting chamber of technology, the disembodied realm of, of techno media and social networking, etc. I would say there's this whole surrogate reality that we've co-created over the last few centuries that's really you know been been completed or it's accelerated massively in the last 20 years and is now at the point where transhumanism even if it's a mad dream uh, is also a kind of dark reality in the sense that people they're going to go into that mad dream state even if it destroys them, and it will. I mean, it, humanity is destroying itself. I have no doubt at all about that. And it's not environmental. It's it's to do with this disembodiment thing. People are actually volunteering to, to leave their bodies behind completely. And they were barely in them in the, in the first place. So that, that, to me, is the real danger. It's something much more distressing and depressing than than a mass apocalypse. Really, it's and that brought it home talking to this friend because I could see his spirit was so low because it, because of the circumstances that had been imposed upon him, um, and that's m millions of people now. I mean, not that they went bad off to begin with, but this is only making it much much worse. Well, what's been very odd for me in in, in all of this um, is it, it seems to me self evident that the response, the general response, has been largely throughout the world to the threat or perceived threat of the virus is so out of proportion to the actual threat as it appears to manifest. And yet and all, when that first became, started to become apparent, as say, hey, we may have gone too far with this, there was very few voices saying, yeah, admitting that, and say, okay, yeah, we should, we'll stop doing this, we'll roll back from that. As you were, folks, sorry, we went a bit over the top, we're a bit worried, so it's a bit overkill, but, you know, as you were. It's been almost the opposite, you know, we've, we've now 
begun to increase measures and address steps, make control more draconian, even as the, and to what extent the threat is real, as that recedes. And also all of that to me just seems really apparent, not only in terms of numbers and uh, lived experience. When I say numbers, I mean, you know, statistics and information that you can glean from around the world on you know various metrics of like what's worked, what hasn't, how many people have been made unemployed versus how many people have died of X, Y, and Z. Um, all these different knock-on effects. All of that, you can learn something there, but also in terms of, of that the thing we're not supposed to trust, our instinct, our intuition, our gut feeling about things, you know, the thing that, again, has got a, a primitive function, a survival response, which is like, I've just got a bad feeling about this, you know, that mm. response. So from all of that to me, it just seems that there's, there's no question. So for so many people, apparently intelligent, informed people, to be then not able or willing to grasp that and to say, yeah, maybe we got this wrong. You know, maybe if we outbreaks of the virus in future and uh, various places that we need to respond differently to how we did last time. Mm. And already I can see a situation in terms of our response to this. And I'm re- reminded constantly of 9-11 because having lived through that as you did, I then saw, you know, there's nothing as permanent as a temporary government measure. I saw steps that were taken that we were informed would be short term in response to 9-11 that we're still living with. And they've become... Never mind the fact that there's people who um, are now adults who were born after 9-11, but there are people who lived through it, people who were born afterwards, who are doing things, for example, at airports, like taking off their shoes and removing their belts, and they don't know why, because mm-hmm. the, the original impetus behind that has been forgotten. A memory hole, it's just lost. So it's like straight, it almost then becomes, you know, some religious observances and rituals and traditions are not well understood. You know, the original reasons behind them have been lost, but people still do them because that's what they do. And as I see this, the the ritual nature of the security theater that was left over from 9-11 and and other terrorist um, incidents, I already see now people engaging in actions that they're already beginning to become unclear about why they were. Do you remember what this, there were meant to have three weeks of lockdown to flatten the curve. Remember that one? So the hospitals wouldn't be overwhelmed. They'd, oh yeah, yeah, I'd have forgotten about that. It was, that was only in March. So I already see the new religious uh, mantras and actions and rituals taking shape. Now, you know, the, the mask wearing, the hand washing, the stuff that is, is of future society if we're not careful that people will be doing i even i look at young kids now you know that they don't know what's going on they're sort of two three four years old there are adults forcing them to wear masks they're being told to you know put hand sanitizing chemicals on their hands at every turn and you know 20 years from now are we all still going to be doing this and and an occasional lone voice saying do you remember what any of this is for we have an over-the-top response to it that then creates waves into the future both in terms of inappropriate over-the-top response, um, which causes more damage than it's intended to. You, know, you can see that definitely with the aftermath of 9-11, all the, the, the violence and the war that came in so-called response to that. But again, also in changes to the fabric of society that are then forgotten, you know, what, what, why we're doing this. Uh, but we keep doing it because, like, you know, if we, uh, a year from now, if we stop, rubbing our hands with hand sanitizer, you know, will we die? And we, you know, <laughs> things become very quasi-religious and very unscientific, very fast in situations like this. Mm. Well, the phrase symptoms developing symptoms comes to mind. I'm trying to get my mind around what you're presenting there. Uh, so I guess it's a further, further being removed more and more from reality and obviously more and more from health because we're talking about symptoms, but also further and further away from any kind of solution or cure. Because if we're looking at symptoms that belong to symptoms that belong to symptoms, uh, in other words, we've got we've got effects that we're when we go to what we think is the cause, we're actually looking at another effect. So we never go far enough back. I've been reading this book today, Morris Berman, Wandering God. And he's talking about, you know, 
the long-term picture of how human societies have developed and I won't try and sum up that because it's too fresh but the, the underlying point is, is that if we want to acknowledge that things have gone wrong and I think the only way not to acknowledge that is to take a very spiritual view that this is all part of a grand design and it may well be but as long as we're in the thick of it we definitely feel that things have gone wrong so if we want to look at that and try and trace it back we have to go way way back so far back that we we have to go back to a previous state of human consciousness if we're looking at symptoms then symptoms are the there's no point in trying to resolve symptoms. I mean, that's the modern way, of course. You know, you just pour medicines into the body so that you can't feel the body anymore, essentially. You start with the, the painful bits, but eventually you end up just trying to disconnect from the whole body because there's, there's so many symptoms in it. And that's the ultimate solution, isn't it? That's the final solution is, can we get rid of the body? Yeah. Ditto with a transgender movement that says, you know, I'm not my sex, I'm something else. Uh, if you're going to deny your sex, then you're denying your body. So the end point of that is actually, I don't like a body, I'm not identified with this body, and so on. So we're seeing a, a pathology, to use an easy term, that uh, has, is very far advanced. And I mean, I personally don't see any future for humanity at all. So when you talk about 20 years, I don't necessarily see it. What you're saying, it's just got so much worse. Certainly, it, it will have done if we're still around. But I see it more as, you know, the, the human organism in its final stages. And, um, you know, how, how, how to navigate that experience. Now, of course, I may be wrong, but <clears throat> I think it, it's actually an optimistic viewpoint for me, ironically, because I see, you know, when a body or a collective is this diseased, death becomes a, a, a mercy, essentially, a mercy killing. So, so I don't, but I, but I only say that because I think that the impetus to try and to worry about problems and the situation and see where it might be going and think we need to head this off is definitely part of the problem. Uh, you know, uh, uh, we've just seen it historically. The more we try and solve problems, whether they're social, whether they're political, whether they're economic, or whether they're uh, spiritual, even because we go back to religion, um, the worse it gets, the worse we make it. And I think the reason is, like the short reason, is that we're we're going further and further into the mind, into the head space, and 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 so our life force is getting. Uh, less and less able to even access and distribute itself through our body we're becoming less and less in touch with our bodily responses and our instincts so of course we're becoming insane you know? that's in a way what insane is is just to be completely trapped in the mind and believing that that is reality uh, that's how delusional people are aren't they they're, 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 whether they're literally hallucinating or just figuratively believing things that are completely unreal and then reacting to that unreality we're, we're in pretty advanced stages of, of that um, that development so I would say that talking about the problem as we're doing and maybe we can bring this back to fear because I know that's supposed to be the topic today looking at the collective situation which is i mean one way of diagnosing it is is as, as a as a humanity a collective possessed by fear and driven by blind irrational fear into more and more absurd and delusional coping mechanisms that that is one way of diagnosing it um uh to to look at it the whole thing or to try to i should say because we can't um, is, a, is only going to perpetuate the fear and the anxiety and the despair and the panic because it's so overwhelming. But if, if as I suspect, and I've been trying to explain or describe, if what we're seeing collectively is, is also an individual, like it's in each and every one of us, we're all carriers of this, this virus called fear, then there is one thing that's helpful in looking at the collective and that will help to resolve the collective situation and that is again turning the focus back to ourselves as in 
what we're seeing in others, even though it's more advanced and more extreme, or at least we want to think that, and most of the time you or I would probably be right, because I think we are relatively sane compared to you know, at least what appears to be happening collectively. It, it's still in us. Like we, we've we've also ended up trapped in this conceptual matrix called the mind, which we've got this word for and this belief that it's there to solve all these problems and that's basically what it, it's trying to do all, all day long, including non-existent imaginary problems. Um, but it's it's not, we don't even know what the mind is. That's what I was going to say. We don't, we don't, it's like the, this um, eponymous self. We've got, we've got this very fixed idea about existing as a mind identity self and it's not, there's no evidence for it whatsoever except this subjective experience that, that tells us. Basically the evidence is our mind telling us, I am you, I am you, I am you, this is reality, I will help you, I will tell you everything you need to know. We might as well say that's a virus, actually, the original virus of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Something interjected into our bodily consciousness and took over the hardware completely. And I do think we're possessed. I really do. I just think it's tricky to talk about that because that can generate more fear. And that and that's a meta question about fear or it brings us back to the beginning. Um, and this, I mean, I use the easy example for me, C.S. Lewis, what he wrote about demons, is they have two, two methods of controlling us. I'm not sure if this came up with you and I, but came up on a couple of podcasts. One is to make us not believe in them, so we don't even notice them, we don't even, not even aware of the way they're manipulating us, and that's the majority of people in the materialist view, although actually there's a lot of Christians, so maybe not, but that's the, that's the dominant belief uh, system or, or perspective. And the other is to, to make us obsess over them, and part of that obsession would be fear, so if we think about demons or being possessed or something having in, interjected into our nervous system and controlling us, that can feed that thing. So, so I just put that as a proviso and a qualifier. One has to be sufficiently grounded in the body and this brings it back maybe to the more essential point is that the body isn't afraid of death, it isn't afraid of viruses, it isn't afraid of collective madness or the end of the world. It's only afraid of and a clear and present threat that it, it has to respond to and react to. I mean, that that's a big statement. I'm sure that there are experts who would question it and want to qualify or, or you know take it apart. But I'll just say, it as a non-expert, in my experience and my observation, the body isn't afraid of these things. Only the mind is. So whenever we're afraid, or when we're confused, for that matter, or overwhelmed, or maybe overwhelmed might overlap with bodily responses, um, we're probably in our mind. I'd say that's the only problem. That's the only problem we have is that we've got, we've got trapped in our mind and the mind, uh, we, don't, we don't understand what the mind is because we're trapped inside it. We don't realize that mind is a some sort of function of the body that develops later, as in babies aren't born with it, the way they're born with livers and kidneys. Uh, or a digestive system, but we develop a mind as a sort of kind of exteriorizing organ, like it's able to project into the future and into other spaces to imagine things and so on. So it has this particular function, which is to troubleshoot, uh, but but it's still essentially a function of the body. And so it's possible to exist outside of the mind and be in the body and still have access to the mind and still use the mind. One doesn't have to become a primitive or a lunatic. There is this uh, threshold that is right there, like a periphery of the mind, that we could step out of, over and out of, at any time, I think. That's theoretical, because I haven't done it, except with psychedelics, and it was terrifying, so there's the fear again. Um, so I don't think we can get out of the mind by trying to get out of the mind, but I think we can observe the body and refer to the body as much as possible and notice that there's life in the body not as much as there could be and as that we need but still there is life in the body we're still alive and that that awareness and that life force can draw our awareness and our consciousness and our our, our sense of existing towards it out of the mind like a pop there'd probably be a pop at a certain point we would just pop out of the mind and into the body 
Um, and that that's the thing, obviously, that's not happening collectively, but that could happen for us individually. And and that's the only solution, I think. So I didn't really answer your point directly, but because for the reason that I didn't want to get pulled into this, but I, I agree with it, that it's like nature balls a vacuum. Religion was a sort of band-aid, as I said at the beginning, or, or a... I'm not sure what I call that, but like a transitional object when we were losing touch with our bodies and thereby our existence, our life force and, and, and the existence at large. I'm not going to say God because then I'm getting into the religious concept thing. But so religion replaced that or, or, or allowed us to at least retain some sense of the, 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 the divine. Uh, and then as we've lost religion, the vacuum has just grown and, and yes, we're at this point, on the verge of the point where technology combined with state power, there are other things I could throw in there, of course, um, belief in other planets and space travel and aliens, and, I mean, it's a whole list, isn't there, Prisoner Infinity list. Anyway, but they're, they're filling the vacuum to the point that... Um, yeah, people people are flattening the curve or whatever, staying at home, wearing the mask, taking off their shoes, with that same primal impetus that their their salvation depends upon it. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.